You're listening to the City Church Downtown Podcast. Now here's Doug Robbins. Well, how are we doing today, City Church? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Well, man, I'm glad to be with you guys today. I want to welcome those of you that are worshiping online as well as those of you that are worshiping in the video cafe. Just had an awesome live music experience with Jesse and Abel in there. And man, I'm really glad to be back with you guys. I had to take uh, some time away in recent days because I was dealing with something that therapists call uh, compassion fatigue. And so you can imagine with therapists that they deal with people's worst problems all day, every day. And some therapists get to a point where uh, they can't feel anything for anybody anymore. And I was getting dangerously close to compassion fatigue and uh, the the things that I've been dealing with here at the church. And uh, I know that my heart is real important in what we do here isn't it? How many of you want your pastor to actually care about you? You know what I mean? Uh, And that's important to me uh, to have a compassion and empathy in my heart for people. Uh, So during this time off, I was reflecting and uh, praying to the Lord. And uh, in our conversations together, I was reminded about uh, one of the things that used to be characteristic of my life often was that outside of church, I would initiate spiritual conversations with people who didn't know Christ and regularly lead people to faith in Christ outside the church. Certainly in the church, it's important, and that counts too, but uh, it was something that was characteristic of my life to do that outside the church as well. And what dawned on me, it's been a long time since I had helped someone come to faith in Christ outside of the church services. And I happen to know from the Bible that if you've left your first love, you go back and you do the stuff that you did at first. And so if you're struggling with that, if your first love for God and the things of God has waned, then you go back and you do what you did at first. And so I was committing to the Lord, I'm going to be doing that, Lord. And uh, so I was doing some work on my house and I was out front. A dude walks down the sidewalk and he says, hey, nice house you have there. And I'm kind of flattered by that. I'm like, oh, thank you. I did it myself. You know, it's kind of nice there. And I, I said, how you doing? Well, he said, oh, I'm doing good. He goes, hey, can you tell me where the nearest hospital is? And I live near downtown. So I said, it's probably the next. So I told him how to get there. And something good happened in my heart in that moment. I cared for the guy. A week prior to that, I'd have been, yeah, it's the next. It's down here. Shove off, right? But I felt something for the guy. And... I said, why are you going to the hospital? Are you okay? And he said, I'm dying. I said, what? You're dying? I said, what's your name, man? He said, my name's Richard. I said, Richard, man, wait right here. I'm gonna go get my car. So I went around back. I got my car. I brought it around. I'm like, Richard, I'm gonna take you to the hospital. On the way to the hospital, we're talking, and he explains to me that when he was 12, he had an organ transplant, that he'd not been taking his meds, and that his liver is failing, that he's gonna die. And I said, what happens when you die, Richard? And he said, man, I don't know. And I said, well, I've got a neat idea about that. And we had a conversation about Jesus and Richard in the car on the way to the hospital, prayed to begin a relationship with Christ there. Right on. And so I got, so when we got there, Um, I give him my phone number. I'm like, Richard, you know, uh, let me know how things are going. Let me know how you're doing. And and I got a couple of, a phone call a couple of days later where he said, man, I'm in good care and I'm getting better and things are going good. You know what Richard needed that day? He needed a little bit of hope. And by the giving of hope to him, it was like God was doing something to renew my heart as well. I needed Richard as much as Richard needed me uh, that day. And Uh, maybe you've experienced a waning hope 
in your life, you know, and I know that a lot of people that are without hope are looking for a quick pick-me-up. That's why we go to dealers, isn't it? And quit acting like goody-goodies, because I know a bunch of you have been to dealers, you know what I mean? There are all kinds of dealers in this world. There's drug dealers. They're like, you know, uh, there's that kind of dealer. There's also like the car dealer that will make you feel good about yourself if you get in this certain kind of car. There's like the essential oil dealers, you know, that'll cure what ails you, you know. Um, essential oil dealers, don't get mad at me. I'm just playing, okay? I'm just joking around, not trying to throw shade or anything like that. And I enjoy a little bit of peppermint in my diffuser from time to time. It takes the edge off, you know, and it's kind of kind of nice there. Uh, but <laughs> you're a bunch of curandettas. But anyways, we, we, we all, in, in all seriousness, Human beings need hope, and sometimes we're going through stuff, and we don't have hope that things are going to get better. Is anybody here today who uh, is going through a trial time, uh, health issue, career concern, and you just don't seem to have any hope that things are going to get better? Or are you in a spiritual place where you perhaps have lost your first love? When you read the Bible, it doesn't like speak to your heart anymore. You come to services, you listen to podcasts, and you're not feeling as much anymore. I mean, no matter how many Bethel music songs you listen to, you just can't seem to feel it anymore. Well, perhaps you need some hope today that things can change in your spiritual life and you can have that passion for Christ again. And one of the things that I've come to terms with is that when I'm tired or I'm suffering or I'm burned out, for my heart to heal, hope is the deal. We all have to have hope. And so I want to Repeat that big idea. Would you say it loudly and boldly with me as I say this out loud? You ready? Here we go. For my heart to heal, hope is the deal. We all need hope. And I didn't just cook this up. I got it from somewhere. I got it from a guy named Levi. And I want to show you uh, what Levi or Matthew, by the way, when I refer to Levi or Matthew throughout, you know, Bible characters, they have like two names, you know. You, so same dude, uh, names Levi and Matthew. But uh, when he saw how Jesus deals with people whose hope is about to die, look at what he says in Matthew chapter 12, look at verse 20. It says, Jesus will not crush the weakest reed, or put out a flickering candle. Finally, he will cause justice to be victorious, and his name will be the what? Hope of all the world. There is like hope just in Jesus' name. And in his person, there's even so much more. Now, why would Matthew write this down? Well, because 20 years prior, he had an encounter with Jesus that changed him and transformed him from what he was into what I'm calling today a hope dealer. And look at uh, this story, and this will be our focal text for today. So if you're opening your phone app, Bible, and all that, uh, this is where we'll be most of the time is Luke 5, 27. It says, Jesus went out, saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting in his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, look at this, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. That statement is what our church is about. You know that, right? It's not the healthy and the religious types that need a doctor. It is the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And I want to show you today from this story 
three facets of hope dealers that we can all aspire to. Look at number one, Jesus calls the hopeless. And if we're to be hope dealers, we have to be uh, like, have, have this honing mechanism to find the hopeless, to seek them and to call them to follow Jesus. Matthew or Levi was a hopeless tax collector. Now in Jesus' day, there were two different types of uh, tax collectors. One are called the gabi, and they were the guys that would come and tax your income. They would tax your grain that you were growing or your wine or uh, your income, whatever you were uh, using as income, because a lot of times they would barter with plants that they were growing and things like that. Um, but the second kind of tax collector in Jesus' day were called the Mokis, and the Mokis were more hated. They had a worse reputation, and that was the type of tax collector that Matthew or Levi was. And the reason that their reputation was so bad was because they had the authority, the Mokis, to make up taxes. So anybody besides me tired of getting added on fees to your concert tickets and sporting events and stuff like that? Uh, you look on your ticket and half the price of your ticket tickets are added fees, aren't they? Um, I was staring at, staying at an Airbnb a couple of weeks ago in another city, and I was like, I may as well stay in a hotel because this particular city makes them tax their Airbnbs so much because of these added fees. Um, like, you look on a ticket, sometimes you'll see what's called the convenience fee. Has anybody seen that one? Yeah, it's real convenient for you to, like, just put this on a piece of paper and milk me for my money, right? Uh, I looked on a bill recently, and it was called the service availability fee. What the heck is a service availability fee? And and this is uh, what the Mokis tax collectors would do. They would face you. They would wait at the ports. And if you had your luggage or your boxes or crates or whatever, they would search everything and they could make up a tax on it. They would tax you on the number of wheels on your cart or the axles or your beast of burden, road taxes, going over a bridge taxes, kind of like tax dot, you know, all kinds of taxes that they would add on. That's why the common people hated them so much. Now on our add-on fees, we're just looking at a bill on our phone app or on a physical piece of paper. We don't see the person, but the Mokis, they would face people, look them in the eyes and tack on fees and make up taxes to milk the poor and the common people for everything that they were worth. And so they were also considered to be like national traders because they were taxing the people. They had to give a certain amount to Rome, the overlords in the area, but then they would tax people above and beyond that to make more money for themselves. So they were considered to be national traders. They were kind of like a mix between Benedict Arnold, Edward Snowden, and Kawhi Leonard all rolled into one. I mean, this is the uh, Mokis tax collector. So you can imagine how bad a rep reputation that they had. Now, the uh, rabbis of the day, um, they position the Mokis tax collectors as not just national enemies, but enemies of God. And what they did was they would create a path of penance for people to be right with God and have a relationship with God. So uh, dependent upon your sins, you had to do a certain type of penance or uh, a number of good religious deeds. Well, the Mokis path to having a relationship with God and doing penance was so difficult, it was nearly humanly impossible. So can you imagine Levi sitting there at this tax booth, had very little hope that he could ever have a relationship with God. And to tack uh, this onto the story, another nuance of it is this, that Levi, if you just look at his name, 
he was perhaps in the family of the Levites. And those of you who have read your Old Testament know that the Levites were the ministers in the temple. So Levi, Matthew, was probably kind of like a pastor's son. He knew better. He knew better than sticking it to the common people because his grandfather and his dad probably were ministers in the temple. And in all of his corruption and in his all, all of his imperfection and lack of hope, Jesus approaches this moky tax collector and says, you come follow me. And immediately Levi stands up, leaves his job and follows Jesus. This is the call of discipleship. And I want you to understand that if you choose to really follow Jesus, it will cost you something. Levi, it cost him his job. I've known a friend in our church who was working for a tech company that was hosting porn and he felt incongruent and he felt like he needed to leave. I've had conversations with women in our church that are working as dancers. Uh, and I don't mean square dancers, okay? It's just like, a, you know, what kind of dancing I'm talking about here. Um, and, one, and by the way, I'm glad I can say that. I'm glad I can say that there are dancers who feel welcomed and loved in our church and feel like they can be a part of the family because we welcome everybody here. Um, but one lady who I remember, she was offended that I would suggest that perhaps that was not the most healthy career for her. I was thinking of her. I didn't want her to have problems. And then another uh, sister in the church left that life and it cost her a lot of money to leave that career. And if you decide, spiritual investigators, I want you to understand up front, you can believe in Christ and that is absolutely free by grace through faith. But if you decide to really follow and be a hope dealer, a disciple, it may cost you something significant. Now, with all the costs and things that you have to give up, you gotta also understand that being a hope dealer and disciple is actually really fun. And that's why number two is true, that hope dealers love parties. Hope dealers love parties. Why do you think Levi threw a party for sinners? Well, remember he was a, of a Levite background and his real calling was to serve the Lord rather than cheat the people, but he would have been well-versed in the writings of Isaiah. And let me show you what Isaiah says about being a God follower and what the kingdom of God is like. I'm going to show you some excerpts from Isaiah 25 and 55. It says this, uh, on this mountain, uh, Isaiah writes, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. Can I get an amen? The Lord has spoken. Is anyone thirsty? Come and drink. Even if you have no money, come take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. Why spend your money on food that does not give you strength? Why pay for food that does you no good? Listen to me and you will eat what is good. You will enjoy the finest of foods. See, the kingdom of God is a feast. It is a party. And I want you to think just for a minute about some of the significant meals that you've had in your life. Maybe you can think of the first date restaurant where you went to with the person that's now your spouse. Maybe you can think about that hole in the wall that you found that, uh, with a friend and you love going there because it's a great meal for a great value. Maybe you can think of that meal right now and it's coming to your mind, your mouth is watering as you think about the meal that your mom or your grandma made that was just for you with the hands of love. Food is real significant to our kingdoms and it is to God's kingdom. 
as well. Um, and that's why we have all these celebrity chefs. We have apps on our phones that are either for dieting or for dining, don't we? That's why I was interested in this little book by a guy named Tim Chester. It's called A Meal with Jesus. And in that book, he poses a question. And the question is this, why did Jesus come? So you fill in the blank. The son of man came to do what? And I know if I were to kind of have a raise of hands and you guys were to speak the reasons that Jesus came, some of you have said things like, well, Jesus came to feed the poor. True. Jesus came to teach the word. Yep. Jesus came to die on the cross for sure. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. You know, we're going to see that in a passage here in a minute. Um, Jesus came to set the captives free. All those things are true. Now, look at the seek and the save the lost uh, passage here. I believe it's uh, uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 45. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's a well-known one. That one's central to our church. Now, there's one reason Jesus came that is a little less well-known. And we're going to see it in Luke 7, I believe it's verse 34. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. Jesus was a party animal. I'm telling you right now, man. We have this event every so often, and it's called a Taste of San Antonio. No doubt some of you have been around here for a while, have been to a Taste of San Antonio. In fact, people have asked me, Pastor Doug, why can't we do Taste of San Antonio every week? Um, and the reason we love it so much is because in all of our diversity, when we come together and we serve those meals, it's kind of like a big potluck. You know, we serve the meals that we make well and share it with others that are a part of our spiritual family. It gives us a glimpse of the kingdom of God. Um, it's a beautiful event. Let me show you just a few places in Luke's gospel where Jesus is eating with people. I could, I could share more, but for the sake of time, I'll just share a few. Luke 7, a prostitute pours expensive perfume on Jesus and kisses his feet during a meal in the home of Simon uh, the Pharisees. Then in Luke 9, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. That's kind of a big deal, right? Luke 19, Jesus invited himself over to Zacchaeus' house for dinner. I'm thinking of employing that one myself. Jesus did it. I'm just, if I hear you're a good cook, I'm just going to invite myself over for a pastoral meal. Um, have, uh, bring those fajitas. Okay, so uh, Luke 22, Jesus shared a meal with his disciples before his death, and we know of that as the Last Supper. See how significant these kinds of meals are? to the kingdom and to our lives as hope dealers. Um, but let's go back to the story of Levi, and we're going to see a significant meal there too. Uh, look at Luke 5, 29. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. And so maybe it's not so bad to be a hope dealer after all. Maybe the sacrifice is not that bad because it involves a lot of eating, doesn't it? But I want to show you another nuance of the story that I think is significant for us in uh, verse 29 there of Luke 5. Levi held a great banquet for Jesus. Look at that last couple of words at his house. At his house. Now, that begs the question for serious cry followers who've read the New Testament you know, Jesus didn't have a house. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, the son of man has no place to lay his head. So Jesus just relied upon the hospitality of other people to have a roof over his head. And so that begs the question, should serious Christ followers actually own a home or have a house? Well, we see a story here where Levi actually had a house, and when he followed Jesus, he kept his house, but he gave his house 
to Jesus for the purposes of the kingdom. And the word to some of you today is that Jesus is interested in your house. You say, Pastor Doug, I don't have a house. Well, Jesus is interested in your apartment. He's interested in your flat. He's interested in your casita. He's interested in your dorm room. He's interested in your macho van, you know, that you live in. I don't know what you live in, but Jesus is interested in the place that you live because he brings his kingdom through houses many times. I got a friend in the church and he uh, bought a fixer-upper near downtown in recent years, and he gave his house to the Lord for God's purposes. And so every Wednesday, he hosts a small group we call Tribes there. And if you look at this picture on the screen, uh, this tribe of people, there's a lady on there named Allie that she sends the email and the online messaging to get everybody there. Tim kind of leads the decession group. But Lorenzo there in that picture, he said, this house is the Lord for the purposes of the kingdom of God, for people to enjoy meals together, to pray for each other, to support each other. And when they walk in there, they're not always going to see the house looking perfect. Have you ever been in one of those houses that looks so perfect that you did, you felt out of place? It's like, even if I take my shoes off, I'm going to break something, something's going to go wrong. But he uh, allowed people to see his house in the process of being renovated because he says it's a picture of his own spirituality that God is over time renewing, restoring his life. And God is interested in your house. And it doesn't have to be perfect, but he's interested in your house. You know, uh, I know that you come to these services and I know what you're thinking sometimes when I'll tell these stories of my spiritual highlight reel. And I'll tell you about, you know, dude walks by the front of my house, you know, and we end up in a spiritual conversation. He comes to faith in Christ and, you, and you're like, Pastor Doug, you're an odd fellow. Um, I'm not gonna like start that conversation, okay? I get it. But you know what you can do is that you can invite someone, even if you don't have a place you can invite someone to a coffee shop or a restaurant and just ask them, how can I pray for you? Everybody can do that. Can I suggest one more thing? Could it be that God, it's not could it be, let me just be real straightforward with you. Many of you need to consider stretching yourself and initiating that conversation. And I know you can have all kinds of reasons not to, oh, I'm an introvert, or oh, I don't have all the answers, or oh, I can't overcome objections. Look, uh, you know how you learn to have a, a, a conversation with someone about Christ? You have a conversation with someone about Jesus. And you're not telling marketers who are overcoming objections. And, you know, if they have this question, then I go to plan 1A on my, my little script here or something like that. That's not what it's about. God doesn't use people who have all the answers. God uses people who by faith put themselves out there and initiate the conversation and the power of his spirit comes and works in and through them to work on and reach people that God was already working in their hearts in the first place. Have you ever talk to someone who said, you know, the reason I became a Christian is because my Christian friend out-argued me and out-debated me. You never hear that story. You hear someone who says, look, my friend didn't know everything, but my friend in his or her heart loved me and cared enough about me to initiate a conversation with me about the ultimate hope, which is Jesus Christ. That's how people come to faith in Christ. But the thing about Levi's party that made it a little bit controversial in his neighborhood was because of his guest list. Look at the Hope Dealer's guest list. It was basically what he did. He started a tribe at his house and he invited his new churchy friends, you know, Jesus and the disciples. But he also invited his unchristian friends as well. And he mixed them up 
together. Um, Levi does not bail out on his old buddies, does he? Now, look, I understand that some of us in a church like ours are going through recovery. And some who have dealt with significant addictions in life, um, we tell you in recovery, you have to leave your old play pals, play things, and play places. And that is true. So being a hope dealer is nuanced. And you have to understand when you're going to be influenced and when you're going to be doing the influencing, right? And you know uh, if you're true to yourself when you can uh, be around the old friends and in what environments you can be. But one thing you can know for sure is that God's intent is to reach your old friends that you used to do some embarrassing things with, right? God cares about them and wants to draw them to face in Christ. And one of the things that you're going to find is that when you go into a certain kinds of religious environments, they won't like unchurched people. It's too messy for them. They, Pharisees do not like irreligious types. Pharisees, what they do is they create a list of rules that nobody can live up to. They create a list of rules that separate them, make them feel better about themselves. It's just like the older brother and the prodigal son. He'd created so many rules for everybody. At the end of the story, he was the only one that wasn't in the feast or wasn't in the party. Not even the father could live up to his expectations, rules, and standards. And I wonder if some of us need to look into our hearts and say, have I created some kind of rules in my heart for people to come into my party um, that are not God's rules? So, for example, maybe some of us think, well, you know, I don't like being around uneducated people. You have to have a certain education level to come to my party. Or maybe you have to have a certain cool level to, uh, to be in your party, right? Your jeans got to be ripped just right. You got to have uh, fashionable tats, you know, uh, a sleeve preferably with three colors. Um, there, there's all kinds of rules that cre- we create in our heads, right? Like you got to have a nice house, and it's got to be a fixer-upper, Chip and Joanna Gaines kind of shiplap house, you know, to, to fit my rules, or it's got to be a tiny, a tidy house, you know, like uh, Marie Kondo, anybody ever watch her, you know, it's like, got to spark joy. Uh, this is the kind of house you got to have um, to, to fit into my rules, but don't be the one that's left out of the party because you created rules that not even the Father God could live up to, and years ago, when I first started really trying to follow Christ, I heard this talk by a sociologist from Eastern College in Pennsylvania. His name's Dr. Anthony Campolo. And he told his story in his talk that really shaped my heart and vision for the kind of church I would want to create someday. And I would just tell you that story, but Dr. Campolo tells it so much better than I ever could. So we found the story online. Take a look at this story by Anthony Campolo. If you go to Honolulu from the East Coast, those of you who have been there know that you wake up like at three o'clock in the morning and you can't get back to sleep. And I'm, I'm hungry. And I, I went looking for something to eat. And even at that wee hour of the morning in a bustling city like Honolulu, you can't find a place that's open. But up a side street, I did find a place. I went in, sat down on the stool, it was a greasy spoon, no booze, just a row of stools in front of the counter. And, and this fat guy with a dirty, filthy, greasy apron came out, pulled his cigar out, put it down, and said, what do you want? I didn't touch the menu. 
It was one of those plastic menus that grease had piled up on it. And I knew that if I opened it, something extraterrestrial would crawl out. <laughs> and so like a cup of coffee and a donut. So he poured the coffee and then he did this. And he picked up the donut. <laughs> I hate that. So I'm sitting there, 3.30 in the morning, drinking my coffee and eating this dirty donut. Into the room come about eight or nine prostitutes and they sat down on either side of me. And I tried to disappear. And the one on my immediate right said, tomorrow's my birthday, she said to her friend. I'm gonna be 39. Her friend said, so what do you want me to do? Sing happy birthday, you want a cake? What, do you, what should we do, have a party for you? You're gonna be 39. First woman said, look, I don't, I'm not expecting anything. I just, why do you have to put me down? And then she said, with a crack in her voice, I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. I don't expect to have one now. That did it. I waited till, you know, till they all left and I was the only one left. I called Harry over. I said, do they come in here every night? He said, yeah. I said, the one next to me? He said, Agnes. I said, tomorrow's her birthday. What do you say we decorate the place? And when she comes in tomorrow, we have a birthday party for her because I heard her say she's never had a birthday party in her whole life. He said, mister, that's brilliant. That is brilliant. Jane, he called his wife out of the back room. She did the cooking. He wants to throw a birthday party for Agnes. I thought, jeez, this is great. She comes out, she grabs my hand. She says, mister, you wouldn't understand this because of what she does, you know? But she's one of the kind people in this town. She's one of the caring people in this town. I said, uh, look, can I, can I decorate the place? She said, to your heart's content. I said, I'm gonna bring a birthday cake. Harry said, oh no, the cake's my thing. I thought, oh geez, you know, God. <laughs> so I got there the next morning. I got there the next morning at about 2.30. I had bought crepe paper at the Kmart, strung it across the plate, place, made a big sign that said, happy birthday, Agnes, put it on the mirror behind the counter. I had the place spruced. Jane, who got, does the cooking, got the word out on the street so that by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was squeezed into this place. I mean, people, it was wall-to-wall -wall prostitutes and me. 3.30 in the morning, the door opens. In comes Agnes and her friends. I got everybody poised, everybody ready. The minute she walks through the door, we yell, happy birthday, Agnes, and all start cheering like mad. I've never seen anybody so stunned in my life. Her knees buckled. They steadied her and got her and sat her down on a chair. And we started singing, happy birthday, happy birthday, happy birthday, dear Agnes. And when they brought out the cake, she lost it and started to cry. Harry just stood there with the cake and finally he said, all right, Agnes, knock it off. <laughs> blow out the candles, Agnes, come on, blow out the candles. She tried and she couldn't, so he blew out the candles and handed her the knife and said, now cut the cake, come on now, cut the cake. She sat there for a long moment and then she said to me, is it all right if I don't cut the cake? She said, what I'd really like to do is take the cake home and show it to my mother. I said, it's your cake. She stood up. I said, do you have to do it now? She said, I live two doors down. Let me take the cake home. I'll bring it right back. I promise. She picked up the cake. 
She pushed through the crowd and out the door. And as the door swung slowly shut, dead silence. The whole group was stunned. I didn't know what to say. Finally, after a few uneasy moments, I said, what do you say we pray? It's weird looking back on it now. <laughs> a sociologist leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning in a diner in Honolulu was the right thing to do, and I prayed that God would deliver her from what dirty, filthy men had done to her, usually starting like it, you know, when they're about 12 or 13, and, and then they're ruined and hurt. And when I finished praying that God would make her new, that God would give her back everything that had been taken from her. I said amen and lifted my eyes, and Harry was right in my face. He said, hey, Campolo, you told me you were a sociologist. You're no sociologist. You're a preacher. What kind of church you belong to? And one of those moments when you come up with just the right words, I said, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. I thought that was a clever answer. <laughs> I'll never forget his response. He looked back and he said, no, you don't. No, you don't. He said, I would join a church like that. <laughs> Wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all join a church that threw birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning? I got news for you. That is the kind of church that Jesus came to create. All right, on. Yeah, so check it out. This is a place, this is the kind of church where we throw birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. That's what we're about. We should probably put it on the front page of our website or something like that. Because we're here to deal hope. When hearts need to heal, hope is the deal. And look, I understand some have perhaps come in here today and you're without hope and without a relationship with God. And you've been led to believe your whole life that if you can do enough religious goody goody things to earn your way into a relationship with God, then maybe, just maybe, if you can be goody goody enough, then God will accept you. But that is a lesser hope. Let me show you a better hope straight from the scriptures. It's Hebrews 7. A better hope is introduced by which we can draw near to God. Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant or a better deal. Jesus lives forever. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered what? Himself. He knew sin so that in him we might know the righteousness of God. He became sin on our behalf. And if you could simply believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sin, you can receive and experience the ultimate hope. Let's bow for prayer. Maybe you'd like a relationship with God and you want to pray something like this just between you and God to receive him into your life. Look, God, I know I've screwed up and sinned, but the best I understand it and the best I know how, I'm choosing right now in this moment to believe that Jesus is my hope, to believe that Jesus died on that cross to pay the penalty 
for my sins. God, I welcome you into my life. And as we continue in prayer, if you're a Christian believer or otherwise, that you could use some hope today, something's gone wrong or uh, you've grown discouraged or disillusioned, just raise your hand real quick. Just raise your hand. Anybody need a little hope today? Well, I want you to just pray in your own heart and mind between you and God, right? And say, God, I'm receiving hope from Jesus today. God, your word says that Jesus is my hope. And I'm receiving hope from Jesus right now, knowing that Jesus can never be taken away from me and that I'll have him for all eternity. And so, God, I receive all the hope for my marriage, all the hope for my career, all the hope for my future, all the hope for my health from you. And I pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Everyone said, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit citychurchdowntown.com.